0: and check out our website at com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Garrett Cash for another installment of Holy Roll focused on Mahalia Jackson, the Queen of Gospel. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and Enjoy. It's time to let
1: it roll, or should I say, holy roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. And if we're doing holy roll, that means I'm joined by Garrett Cash. And tonight we're talking about a chapter out of the book, The Gospel Sound by Anthony Howlbutt, and a little bit out of Mahalia Jackson and the Black Gospel Field by Mark Burford. Garrett, welcome back.
2: Thank you very much. Been a
1: while. It has, it has. And we're coming up to the big one Mahalia Jackson herself. Who is Mahalia Jackson?
2: Well, she is uh, sort of, uh, in the eyes of America, the gospel singer. Uh, One of the quotes from our book that we're reading here, The Gospel Sound, says, If America knows no other gospel singer, she has conferred a blessed status on Mahalia Jackson. All by herself, Mahalia was the vocal, physical, spiritual symbol of gospel music, the superstar uh, of gospel music of the late 50s and early 60s. I mean, kind of the embodiment and... Uh, public image of gospel music.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I know I've said this several times before, but my parents had their Mahalia Jackson albums prominently displayed on their giant uh, wooden stereo uh, bookcase uh, thing, that, that great 50s hi-fi system that they had with the, the tweed speaker covers and the wooden lid on the top and everything. And Mahalia Jackson was prominently displayed and frequently played on there. Uh I think you know for a lot of American liberals, she represented their ideal of acceptance and open mindedness and welcomed her into their home on her Columbia record albums. But you know, one thing that I didn't really get was the magnitude of her success on Apollo starting in the mid forties Apollo is an independent label um I guess best known for 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 putting out records by Mahalia Jackson what I didn't understand was that she had what two songs that sold a million copies I know move on up a little higher did um
2: yeah uh that that one was the uh, I believe the very first gospel million selling record and uh, I don't remember the title of another one if she had another uh, million seller but I mean they They were big selling records, period. I know that. I mean, in the uh, Black community at the time, she was a superstar. And like the general uh, racial separation and divide of the era, you have these uh, separate worlds where she's really well known in the uh, black community, but is not known to the white, quote unquote, mainstream at the time at all until she starts appearing on, uh, you know, the big television shows like the what became the Ed Sullivan show in the early 50s and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, America tends to remember uh, Mahalia Jackson as being a part of the sort of civil rights movement. A lot of people know that she was a, a close friend of Martin Luther King Jr., and that she was a part of the civil rights movement and was present at some of its major events, that um, she was there during uh, Dr. King's uh, famous March on Washington, I Have a Dream speech. And in fact, uh, if I remember right, she's the one that spurred on that speech uh, and told him uh, to tell them about the dream. So she gets mentioned a lot because of that aspect of her legacy, which is a phenomenal legacy to have and an important part of her character and her life. But... Um, being that we're talking about the history of gospel music in this series, I think that it's interesting and important to note that Mahalia Jackson certainly represents to me the kind of first stage of gospel music's commercial explosion as an art form. because. We do have in the uh, we've explored already a little bit in previous episodes if you, the listener have not heard them. We've talked about uh, the spirituals. We've talked about the early gospel music when it was uh, sort of a uh, just offshoot of the blues. Um, the Thomas Dorsey uh, gospel songs, the early gospel songs. and she kind of comes right at this period where, gospel is a little bit inchoate and is forming and growing. And she kind of becomes the first big figurehead of the movement that is able to bring a lot of people together to uh, appreciate what What? everybody can recognize as a truly gifted and phenomenal, talented singer and someone who has a lot of personal charisma and a larger than life kind of um, persona. And I think that she just kind of ended up being there at the right place and the right time and had the right amount of talent to be able to uh, become what we were talking about, this symbol of gospel music. And like you said, for a lot of people, after she entered into the white mainstream was kind of the token gospel artist that people knew about or would own albums by. So I think that she's really important to look at as a great gospel singer, but also as an important cultural figurehead, too. But I think in this episode, we're going to mostly look at her early life and her early gospel recordings. And um, I'm excited to kind of dive into these Apollo recordings because they really do showcase a great gospel artist, regardless of any other context.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, her later body of work has taken a lot of critical knocks. I think Halbert has a quote Uh, saying that, you know, uh, in Europe and white America, Mahalia is the single most important gospel singer, not alas, without some diminution of her distinctive manner. Mahalia, the musical daughter of Bessie Smith, was effectively... Modified into a black Kate Smith, so kind of unfair to Kate Smith to use her as the sort of bad <laughs> example or the opposite of Bessie Smith, but it's also kind of fair.
2: It, it uh, is kind of true, I gotta say.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, well, and, and and this is something
2: that I mean, when we when we talk about a little bit of the later gospel artists, um, we're gonna talk about how. I guess the styles started really div there there are different styles of gospel music that start coming about in the 1950s especially because you have the quartets and then you have the solo singers and in the 60s you had the explosion of the um big choirs like the James Cleveland style and so it starts kind of having just like how any genre has its own little subgenres gospel has its kind of subgenres and substyles but um Mahalia is kind of the ultimate solo singer uh in terms of that area of gospel music. And I feel like in general, that style might be the most underappreciated out of all of the gospel styles because the quartet style went on to influence rock and roll greatly. And so that has been widely acclaimed by all the fans of rock music or soul music because it's a clear predecessor Um, the uh, choir style is the style that pretty much ended up becoming the dominant style even into the modern era I mean Kirk Franklin just won a bunch of Grammy Awards the other night so it's obviously the dominant style still but um, this solo style is the one that has kind of remained a little bit um, I I hate to use the word outdated but it's kind of not as uh, well And I feel like Mahalia has taken a little bit of a uh, critical hit for that. But even though this music does indeed have a little bit of a dated feel to it for its own, uh, I I guess, uh, being of it being a a solo gospel singer, um, this is pretty much considered the prime example of that style. I think it's a very valid style and that um, if you adjust your ears a little bit and allow your ears to experience something that you may not be as used to or understand having much of a direct connection to, I think this music is very, very moving and powerful and um, showcases a lot of uh, talent and expertise and uh, soulful emotion and a lot of things people enjoy in the stuff they're more familiar with.
1: No doubt. And, and this is going to be a little bit of a curveball because we're about to hear Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out by Bessie Smith, the queen of the blues, the queen of the classic blues singers of the 1920s. When we come back, Garrett, you can tell us why we're hearing Bessie Smith on The Mahalia Jackson Show. That was Bessie Smith's version of Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. So what's the Bessie Smith-Mahalia Jackson connection?
2: Well, uh, to step back just this one step, um, Mahalia, we're going to talk about Mahalia's background, and Bessie Smith kind of is her background, but she was born in New Orleans in 1911, and um, Anthony Hobbit in his book that we've been working off of, The Gospel Sound, says that everything about her diction, build, and manner bespeak New Orleans. Um, so there's this music obviously new orleans has this great musical uh just you know, environment where the music will uh, come to being within this environment of all these different sounds uh rubbing up against each other cultures uh being together as you've talked about in uh other episodes of your show um but in this case her early musical idol is Bessie Smith, who is one of the very first blues artists, one of the first major uh, commercially successful blues singers. And at this time, she's a daughter of devout Baptists, but she's a niece of professional entertainers. And I think that it's interesting that she has this kind of uh, one side of the family being the devout Baptists, one side being the entertainers, because you see that actually go through her entire life. And this, fascination that she has with Bessie Smith is a part of her love of entertainment and of style and of the singing style in and of itself. And I think that Bessie's style is the uh the obvious predecessor to uh Mahalia's like that song that we just heard to me. Uh if you just switch some of the if you switch the words to being about uh Jesus, it would you could easily pass it as a Mahalia recording.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I kind of look at Mahalia and Ella Fitzgerald as sisters or cousins because they were both obsessed with Bessie Smith and they were both about the same age. And they took that Bessie Smith influence in very different directions. Mahalia becomes the queen of gospel and Ella Fitzgerald becomes, you know, the queen of the great American songbook and, and one of the singers that takes jazz into modern jazz. You know, she starts out as a swing singer and a pop having pop hits. But pretty soon, you know, by the mid 50s, she's right up there with Frank Sinatra as far as being on the cutting edge of making jazz an art song movement. And so it's very interesting to me to compare Ella Fitzgerald and Mahalia Jackson, and their um, similar point of origin, and then what they did with those influences. But there's other ingredients in the Mahalia mix. One of the things that I didn't really understand until we read Burford was that the importance of Mahalia being a Baptist or Thomas Dorsey being a Methodist and being coming coming from these mainline denominations and yet being really powerfully influenced by the sanctified holiness and Pentecostal churches. And Mahalia grew up right next door to a sanctified church in New Orleans and brought a lot of that passion. You know, the, the Pentecostal movement starts in 1908 or 1911 in Los Angeles. It's an integrated movement that... Really brings it's kind of a self conscious move, but bringing back the fiery passion of the spirituals and the the ring shouts and the traditions of African Americans during slavery days brings that into the modern, you know, post emancipation era and into the 20th century. And then, kind of the whole first half of the 20th century is these mainline denominations dealing with this power that had been released in the in the sanctified and Pentecostal churches and figuring out how to compete with it and and Mihalia and you know working with Thomas Dorsey is a big part of that and taking those blues influences from Bessie Smith and others you know Dorsey played with Ma Rainey as her piano player and musical director and so using you know taking that blues which is tightly connected to the spirituals and and you know reinserting that into that tradition it's 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 really fascinating it's like a great sort of chess game between these denominations to to keep people coming in the doors and keep people engaged emotionally and spiritually in what's going on in the church and and Mahalia absolutely a power player in this in this dynamic
2: and i think that that was part of the secret sauce that led to her emergence as the central figure of gospel music. I mean, besides the obvious record label marketing or any other elements that may be present, because I mean, we can talk about how she was kind of chosen, so to say, by the cultural lead as the figurehead of the genre, but I think part of the reason why she was able to succeed like she did was this bridging of her uh, Baptist background with her Pentecostal leanings and influences, because um, what she talks about as being her initial repertoire was the Baptist hymns, the ones that we've talked about that were written by people like Isaac Hayes or Fanny Crosby. Isaac what? And she was a huge... Or Isaac Watts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, big, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, big fan of, you know, Amazing Grace, Days Past and Gone, etc. And she talks about how those hymns were the ones that had the uh, big influence on her and were to her the most powerful music that she could think of. And when she uh, would sing these hymns, though, what would come out was a Pentecostal singer. And that was what, to me, is the Secret element of what she accomplished is that she's taking something that would have been well known and loved by one denomination and then injecting the uh, power and the uh, Holy Spirit, uh, you know, str- stretching out and the um, belting and the blues notes and whatnot from the and the improvisation from the Pentecostal side of things and that that's what kind of gives her music it's um really unique aspects like when you listen to these apollo recordings what i hear is a person who loves hymns singing in a gospel style um because she does sing a lot of blues tainted songs and whatnot songs that sound like um sort of uh songs that had been originally blues songs that are now gospel songs but you can tell a lot of them are pretty much just hymns that she's given the gospel treatment too
1: yeah absolutely and, and her passion for isaac watts i mean it seems like of the of the gospel artists we've talked about so far she's the most vocal student of isaac watts and and the one who's most open about taking that british anglo um hymnal tradition and bringing it into the african-american tradition and you know i mean obviously that 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 was a big part of what was going on with the spirituals as well is along with learning English, which is kind of the software of our brains, and then adding uh, these British songs, and then taking the African songs and the so- African American songs as well, and creating that mix. And Mahalia um, is kind of drawing back on these roots. You know, she's going all the way to the source of the hymns. She's going to the source of the source of the blues. She's going to the source of uh, Yeah, the music and and reinvigorating. But let's hear our next song. And this is God Shall Wipe All Tears Away, written by Antonio Haskell, sung by Mahalia Jackson. jackson singing uh professor antonio haskell's god shall wipe all tears away and why'd you pick that particular one
2: well it was one of the first records that she ever cut that was for Decca in 1937 she had been gaining a following in the midwest for a while and, and um, i'll kind of cut back a little bit to where she how she got there but uh, i picked that because her style is already evident there but Her voice is obviously much more high and nasal than the way that we're used to hearing her, especially the Columbia recordings, but even the Apollo ones sound uh, much more uh, deep than that one did. Uh, You you could almost not even recognize. uh, And in fact, Just like you said, I thought when I listened to that track that I could hear a little Ella Fitzgerald in the register that she was in and doing the Bessie Smith slurs and whatnot. Uh, There there is somewhat of a resemblance, Uh, but I thought that that one was a great example of how she would build the... emotion and conviction of the song to a fervor that is just unstoppable at the end of the song obviously we only played a clip but you should go and listen to the full song because what Mahalia does that's so brilliant and many of her recordings is that she uses dynamics to hold back some of her vocal power at the beginning of the song to build to a uh, really big crescendo at the end that's uh, gonna wreck the church so to say
1: Yeah, and it was interesting. You know, you can, it's easy to sleep on this brief period. Uh, She only did four tracks for DECA in 1937. And it's easy to think of Mahalia as a 40s, 50s, and 60s artist and not think of her as one of these World War II era artists whose peak years were spent on the bench because of a variety of reasons low record sales in the depression, starting out, you know, meant a lot of black artists in the 30s didn't get to record at all. Then you had uh, the uh, Musicians Union strikes in the 40s during World War II. You had the shellac shortage during World War II when, you know, Japan was conquering East Asia. That's where we were getting shellac, which is some sort of byproduct of some sort of uh, Asian insect. And mm-hmm. shellac is what they were using to print the 78 records. So she's very much sort of like, um, you know, Charlie Parker and the beginning of, of Bebop or Bill Monroe and the beginning of Bluegrass. There's just this whole period uh, or, you know, the beginnings of Latin jazz with Mario Baza and Dizzy Gillespie. There's this, this incredibly vibrant period of American music from the late 30s to the mid 40s that was mostly not recorded and Mahalia's uh, discography is is part of that or, or you know there's these gaps like she doesn't record between 1937 and 1945 which are probably her peak years and uh, you know so it's it's just kind of one of those um, I guess treasure what we did get because we don't know what we didn't get when right. she wasn't recorded in that period
2: and and like you said, it's hard to remember what these people were doing during these times they weren't recording because we really only have access to the records. But, I mean, she had arrived in Chicago in the late 1920s, and she's already singing lead with a choir, the Greater Salem Baptist Church. And she starts one of the first professional gospel groups in the 1930s, and they toured churches. Uh, she had gotten married during that time and had started businesses Um, So she was already showing a lot of the uh, pioneering spirit, the business spirit, and in general, just the um, fame for her vocal prowess was already cemented before she ever even uh, hit record at any given time. And like you said, there's just this really unfortunate period where... Uh, she probably grew as a singer between the four recordings that we hear in 1937 and the beginning of Apollo in 1946. And it's really just a question of how much she grew, and then um, her voice obviously would have changed or gone deeper. Uh, I, I tend to believe that the Apollo recordings could be her peak, really, because at, at that point she's having to use the studio rather than the church as a. Way to showcase her vocal powers because you got to remember she talks about this too that it was very hard for her to record at this time because when she was able to sing with the churches she had free reign to sing Amazing Grace for a half hour if she wanted to but uh, unfortunately at that time there was no Grateful Dead recordings or anything like that where you could <laughs> do a song for thirty minutes uh, I'd much rather hear Mahalia sing that for thirty minutes <laughs> I don't know sorry Grateful <laughs> Dead fans but uh, but the uh Yeah, there was there was there was no chance that you were going to get to sing something for the amount of time that you would have sung it at a church. So she's having to cut down her improvisations and the way that she would normally do something down to three minutes. And I think that her entire approach is going to be different in the recording studio regardless. And so, yes, she was able to hone her church singing during that time. But I think that her recording singing probably was at the peak in Apollo still.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it's an incredible body of work. So I'm not not trying to knock that at all. It's just tempting to think what might have been. And also this the sure. early 40s was a period when she was working very closely with Thomas A. Dorsey, you know, the father of the gospel yes. blues. And kind of a battle of wills there, you know, that she she had her own sense of meter and melody and Just painted outside the lines, you know, did not follow the rules and was was difficult to play with and very difficult for somebody like Dorsey, who's looking for singers that he can use as vehicles to sell his songs and. Uh, it worked together. So, so very- really
2: you have Thomas Dorsey as Phil Spector and you have <laughs> Mahalia Jackson as uh, uh Willie Nelson, maybe <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody can play behind her because she has no <laughs> standard sense of meter or time.
1: Yeah. Something like that. She definitely got her own sense of time and she does eventually put together her own little combo. Um And, and, you know, as a key piano player that she plays with, um, you know for years and years so we don't know what she sounded like when she was playing with Thomas A. Dorsey they didn't record together and that's just another one of those one of those what ifs um and, so. and he
2: and he really struggled uh to train her but and yet he had so much success with her and that had to be an interesting uh thing for him to see that of course, we've seen Thomas Dorsey as being the uh central figure up until this time where I mean he's the one that's writing the songs and he's uh having you know working with Sally Martin to bring them to the churches and he's the the one uh out there making these uh choirs happen and the uh, gospel. Uh, groups and um really is just the, the the man kind of spearheading and pioneering this genre and here comes somebody that he's going to try to mold just like he's done with everybody else and she mm-hmm. just totally does not fit in, in into what he's trying to do but she's uh re- really reaching new heights
1: yeah and he must have felt like he was you know um working a wagon with a with a really fiery steed pulling it and and yeah. that thing was just going down the road and he yeah. all he could do is hold on yeah um well let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors when we come back we'll talk about uh, Mahalia's uh, years at apollo and her relationship with bess berman
3: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds
1: And so, one other thing we haven't talked about is that early on when she came to Chicago, she was immediately uh, you know, singing lead in big churches and and singing with gospel groups and drawing a lot of attention. But she was also getting some pushback. Uh, for her flirtatious manner and her her active dancing when she performed, you know, and saying things like, uh, "Surely, out of all these handsome men in this congregation, I can find me a good husband," and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> can
2: you imagine?
1: I know. <laughs> uh, well,
2: and, and what's funny about this, and if you're not familiar with Mahalia Jackson, you're listening to this, you you may have never seen a picture of her or anything like that, but if if you have. What you've probably seen is a picture of a woman uh, who's a uh, middle aged African American woman in a very drab looking outfit, some kind of a black robe, something like that. Hands clasped together up towards heaven, eyes up to the sky, uh, maybe a little tear coming down the cheek. I mean, very dignified and reverent and, uh, you know, very, very faithful looking. And this is the image of Mahalia Jackson as, as this just um, this super spiritual. Woman that was just always in a state of prayer, no matter what. And uh, people forget that she kind of had this period of being a little bit of a, you know, holy rocker. She would really perform and entertain and she would do uh, just uh, very, very sexual, crazy things like lifting up enough, uh, uh, you know, of her dress that you could see a little bit of her ankle, just shocking things. Um, <laughs> you know, th- things in church that would, you know, really make a man sweat uh so <laughs> the, the very different standards back then of course but i mean somebody uh was quoted as saying that uh mahalia was the sexiest thing out there and i mean i have never heard anybody refer to her that way <laughs> certainly not in the columbia years that's not the image that she had but in these gospel years that was she had this whole kind of uh sexy very uh energetic spunky flirtatious kind of image
1: yeah, no doubt. And and um, you know, she 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 manages to channel that and to and to sort of contain that energy into a package that is more presentable and ultimately she becomes the one that's the most presentable and, and that that you know people like CBS uh the radio network and CBS TV network actually want to feature her work. But first she cuts this deal with Apollo Records in New York run by Mrs. Bess Berman. Uh, cuts move on up a little higher, which was written by William Herbert Brewster. And uh, it's it's a massive hit. And I, you know, it's been sort of a head-scratcher to me like how a, a gospel record in that period of time sold that many units, because a lot of the record sales in R&B at this period of time would be jukebox hits. But it's hard to imagine uh these songs on the jukebox next to like 60 Minute man or something you know, kinda, uh, work <laughs> hey, it's with the
2: cleanser you know yeah. after, after that you gotta scrub your mind clean
1: a little <laughs> yeah so but but I assume that they you know sold a lot through churches and uh people just wanted to have this record and have it at home and yeah and... well
2: and, and just like the way that Christian music succeeds nowadays I mean Christian music, at at least, you know, certainly for for years, and uh, especially before it became the industry that it is now, uh, was something that happened almost totally within the privacy of people's own homes. There wasn't radio stations that played it. There wasn't, um, you know, festivals that you could go see. I mean, contemporary Christian music, for instance. I mean, you couldn't, you know, really uh, have these kind of large public gatherings or uh, just listen in on a jukebox or a radio to what you wanted to hear. You had to go buy the record and basically just listen to it whenever you wanted to. And I, I assumed that that was the, the case here. Somebody could tell me otherwise. But yeah, I agree with you. I don't really see these songs being necessarily played on the radio or jukebox. I mean, moving on up a little higher is a is a two-part record. It has a part one on one side and a part two on the other side. And when you combine both of them, I think it's a six-minute song. So the idea of a radio station playing a six-minute gospel song that doesn't really have a chorus. I mean, it just I, I I wasn't only just surprised that a gospel song sold that much. I was surprised this gospel song sold that much because I I mean it's a phenomenal performance. It's a great song, exceedingly well written by uh Herbert, William Herbert Brewster. But it it's not really a song that I would consider commercial. It's got a lot of uh, very uh, bib- very biblically specific language in it that is not necessarily something that would just present itself to being easily understood by a layman. Um, it, it's got some really strong theological stuff in it. Like I said, there's no chorus really that you can just kind of hear in your head and hook onto. Um, it, it really is amazing just how big this song got considering the nature of it.
1: Yeah, and, and Brewster also wrote "Surely God Is Able" for uh, Clara Ward and the Ward Singers, which was the second million-selling gospel album. So he's kind of a one-man uh, gospel songwriting.
2: Yeah, he's the he's the hit factory. Yeah, the, and uh, I, I, of he was
1: able to collect his royalties on those because uh, you know it should be set for life after writing two million-selling songs. And and um, you know once Mahalia had this massive hit, then she. Her profile raises even higher, and she's playing Chicago. She's playing New York. She's touring churches all over the country, and you know people are saying things like, "This woman is downright terrifying to see in person," and you know that that she's playing church wreckers and and that just bringing down the house, um, over and over again, and 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 perfected her her backing, you know the the. I think of gospel as piano and organ and a singer, and you know, with Mildred Falls on piano and Blind Francis on organ, you kind of perfected that. Sometimes they would have Sam Patterson on guitar, or others, but frequently it's just that piano and organ, and it's that same combination that you know Bob Dylan or Ray Charles made such uh, hay with in the '60s as part of their R&B and rock sounds, and and you know, it's 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 interesting. It's not something I would have thought where did this stuff come from like my first exposure to bob dylan i was not thinking oh this is the black church <laughs> you know i was thinking uh, right, this, right. this is this crazy folky uh you know singing these psychedelic lyrics and everything but but musically he's he's drawn very much on what mahalia he was doing just 15- well, and you
2: and you can hear this sound in weird places like i mean just as a very recent example i happened to be playing um billy joel's uh multi 10 times multi platinum hit record the stranger last night and the very last song on it is called everybody has a dream and if you go listen to that right now guess what the first thing you're going to hear is piano and an organ there you I mean go. it's like I mean it, like like that that song is meant to sound like a gospel song and that's the sound right there and I mean it's just uh, amazing how that uh texture and that combination really became the bedrock of soul and rock and all that, as you were saying. Um, and, of course, in the 70s, you have that combination being used a lot with these big rock orchestrations of the Leon Russell and George Harrison variety. And, I mean, it just—it it really is the, the kind of central element to a lot of that stuff. And, and it's interesting how versatile that sound has been because, like you said, it goes all the way back to here where it's really just that sound and her voice, And then it's been used in so many different other combinations as, you know, adding that gospel texture to something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's go ahead and hear our third song. And this is the famous Move On Up A Little Higher by William Herbert Brewster, performed by Mahalia Jackson. Sells a Million on Apollo Records. (laughs) move on up a little higher as sung by Mahalia Jackson and yeah it's it's um I mean all we can go with is the evidence, the historical record that thing sold a million copies and and uh, it's... at a
2: time when people didn't even really pay attention to gospel record sales at all also I mean there's no gospel chart there's nothing like that at the time and that that song I, I would assume it probably sold even more than they uh, than the numbers show nowadays you see what i'm saying there's probably yeah. a, a lot there that was unaccounted for as well
1: it's it's that's that's definitely a live suspicion and miss berman <laughs> might have been hiding some of the sales Uh huh. might have and, been
2: hiding some of those numbers yeah, <laughs> an, ex- yeah. an extra under the table
1: <laughs> anything's anything's possible anything's possible and another thing that's interesting now is that mahalia is immediately noticed by jazz critics and jazz critics are really have become a thing by the mid 40s. Like they they start out in the in the late 20s as you know kind of fanzines and and informal. And by the 30s, it's becoming more serious. And you're getting people who are really serious jazz heads who are scouring the used record bins. And you know people like Jerry Wexler, later of Atlanta Records at the time with Billboard. Uh, you know they're they're codifying what are the great jazz records and they immediately hone in on Mahalia. And this is a, a time when there's a split in the jazz scene between the quote-unquote moldy figs who are trying to revive Dixieland, the original New Orleans style of of jazz, people like Bunk, Bunk Johnson and others. And then there's the bebop artists, like the, these young bloods like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie are coming along and, and overthrowing everything and and trying to self-consciously take jazz from being a dance and pop music and make it an art music. And so these critics that are in the middle of these really divisive fights, like it's hard to fathom until you go back and read some of this you know, jazz magazines from the 40s. These guys were ready to throw blows over, you know, Dixieland versus bebop and Moldy figs versus, you know, modern noise and all this kind of stuff. But they just, all just, liked in, the hell just yeah.
2: in case anybody's wondering, if if you want to actually go out and have a fist fight over jazz, I I would be fascinated to see that. <laughs> I, I might even join in. I mean, you just tell me when and where, and you know which side you're on, and let's do it.
1: The Jazz Ultimate Fighting Championship. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the time the time might have come for that. But uh, you know, people were 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 upset about this stuff, and they were you know spilling a lot of ink and hopefully not too much blood over it. But they loved Mahalia, and that helped build her reputation, and that helped bring her to the attention of people uh, like the people at the CBS. Record label or Columbia Records and the CBS networks of radio and 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 um, TV and then you know the much maligned Mitch Miller the great classical oboist who becomes one of the first real record producers in the sense that we think of him today like the George Martin or Phil Spector kind of auteur uh, uh, record producer and Mitch Miller for as much as Frank Sinatra didn't like him and as much as he didn't like rock and roll. Mitch Miller was really doing some innovative work and in creating sound sculptures. One of the first people, along with Les Paul, to use the studio to create sound sculptures. And, you know, Mahalia falls into his clutches in the mid-50s. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a definitely an interesting period of, of cultural collision because it's a period when Religious songs, not necessarily gospel songs or spirituals or hymns, but religious songs. These are pop songs with religious references written for the pop market, are immense. And so, you know, that's kind of the the market.
2: And and we're talking about songs like uh, "Forget Your Troubles," "Come On Get Happy," "The Lord's Gonna Take Your Cares Away," or songs like uh, "You Got to Walk Down That Lonesome Road." Uh, These songs that are pop songs of the era, but they have this semi or even sometimes outright religious message but they are accepted and recorded by the era's major uh, pop stars
1: yeah and 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 it's a big phenomenon and it's part of that whole cold war package where you know America's been through world war 2 and the depression and they're coming out of that and rolling right into this conflict with um communist russia communist soviet union and it becomes this global ideological conflict and Americans are terrified of of nuclear bombs the hydrogen bombs just been invented and you know this this concept that human beings could actually deliberately destroy all life on earth is, is new and overwhelming. And these religious songs are part of a sort of socio-political effort to beat back the commies and, and you know center the church in American life as as a core part of the American capitalist value system that's going to you know, resist communism and, and resist Uncle Joe Stalin and his attempts to take over the world. So Mahalia is you know, kind of on the front lines of the Cold War through this whole period. Um, and it's just fascinating to think about, like, there's a lot more going on than you can get just hearing Mahalia struggling with overproduction and corny material. <laughs> right a lot a lot more going on but do you want to talk about the apollo period a little more is there what else do you want to say about the apollo period before we totally switch to the columbia
2: so the the apollo period and and something we're going to talk about a little more in the the next episode um we're we we're, uh, I don't know if have we officially booked uh, Mr. Burford or we,
1: uh, he's agreed to come on the show and so we'll have him next time that the hard party's going to get all three of us there
2: but. yes yeah we'll, we'll we'll figure that out but uh, we We read this book um, in preparation for talking about Mahalia that is called Mahalia Jackson and the Black Gospel Field by Mark Burford. And this book um, really blew me and Nathan both away because um, it's a book that does not, it's not a book really strictly about Mahalia Jackson at all. I think we had both uh, got read it thinking that we were about to read a regular biography of Mahalia Jackson. And instead, we got this uh, incredible scholarly work on her early years and especially on her Apollo recordings and the uh, musical specifics of it and the uh, just re- really looking at all this cultural context that we're talking about. And if the you're business someone- context. Yes, exactly. And if you're someone that likes a good old fashioned deep dive into a subject, this book is really a phenomenal uh, source that I wish we had more gospel books that were uh, this well written and well thought out and well researched, because frankly, there's just not that much out there in comparison to a lot of other genres like blues or uh, country or jazz and rock. And uh, Mr. Burford is certainly to uh, uh, be given respect for uh, writing something with, you know, so much uh, uh, passion and intellectual brilliance. And the and the reason why I bring this up is that uh, the book really focuses a lot on the recordings that Mahalia made at Apollo. And what he does is he really dives deep into all the different implications, both musically and socially, uh, culturally um you know spiritually etc that come with these recordings that um they're not frequently thought of as some of the greatest recordings ever made by 20th century artists the way that maybe elvis at son is or um you know sam cook with the soul stirrers or uh, Louis armstrong with his hot five uh, you know these are sort of eras that are thought of as Uh, definitive moments in a great artist career that he really makes the case that this Apollo period for Mahalia Jackson may be one of the uh, great moments of music in the 20th century in America. And if you go and you listen to, there is on uh, streaming services right now, there's a collection of the complete Apollo recordings by Mahalia Jackson. I think it runs in excess of three hours, but these uh, songs are really just a great example of everything that we've been talking about, that she is merging the Bessie Smith blues styles and the um, the Isaac Watts hymns and the um, the Pentecostal kind of swing element to it. And you can also hear towards the end of it, even before she gets to Columbia, you can start to hear they are kind of popping up the records a little bit at the end. I, I noticed that when I was listening to it, that they started adding some, I don't know what what the names of the singers are, but it almost sounds like the Jordanaires or something in the mix there at the end. So it, I, I won't lay the blame of all that completely at the feet of Columbia. It's just kind of the way that the world was changing at the time. But for a while there, Mahalia Jackson was doing recordings at, on Apollo that really are definitive gospel recordings of their period because as we said the instrumentation the material that she was singing the um, people who had written these songs and the performances all exemplify in the best way what gospel music was at that time and what it wasn't when it changed in the 50s because at this time these songs are written by people like your William Herbert Brewster's and Thomas Dorsey's Um, People, Robert Anderson, people that are the early gospel writers before it becomes the Tin Pan Alley writers attempting to sound like gospel. And so what you're getting is the true gospel material sung in the true gospel way with what was the traditional or accepted gospel instrumentation at the time, which is not what happens at Columbia where all that changed.
1: Yeah, very much. Let's hear our final song. This is Mahalia Jackson doing Let the Church Roll On.
0: Church roll on. Let the roll on. If a in the, church, if
3: a in the church,
0: and, do right,
3: and do right,
0: tell me what we
3: do. Now, what should we do? The
0: roll
1: on. And that was Mahalia Jackson singing, Let the Church Roll On. And why did you pick this one?
2: Uh, I picked this one because it sort of exemplifies the transition that I was talking about right there, where She has this period in the early to mid 50s where the material and the style of the recordings is still very much in the vein of what she had been doing on Apollo in the late 40s. Um, but there are certain elements starting to encroach that are a little bit more accepted by white audiences. And if you notice in this recording, she's singing a song that has that gospel feel to it, has the gospel instrumentation, and the uh, song itself does not sound like something that's a, um, you, you know, a, a 10 pan alley imagination of gospel. Um, but you will notice that there is what at least. Uh, to to my ears, sounds like a Southern gospel quartet singing with her of the uh, Jordanaires or Statesman variety. I'm not sure exactly which one. Sounds kind of like the Jordanaires to me. Um, And and, and that lends a whole different flavor to the recording just by adding that because that was not really present on any of her Apollo recordings. And when you add that element to it, it instantly sounds more like 50s-style gospel than what had come before it. So I think that it's an interesting... Uh, portrait of a era kind of moving from one sound and aesthetic and arrangement style to another.
1: Yeah. And that and that merging of the Black gospel tradition and the white Southern gospel tradition, yes. that's pretty much what Elvis is going to be obsessed with in his 70s uh, Vegas period and and his 70s Tory packages, you know, putting together uh, a, a white Southern gospel quartet and a Black uh, Southern Gospel Quartet in the same, basically, orchestra. You know, Elvis- Yeah,
2: and, and that was one element that I noticed when I picked this song was that if you listen to the backing vocals by the Southern Gospel group that sing with her, they sound remarkably like what would be on any given Elvis album at the time. And uh, her vocal performance also sounds like what Elvis would have been attempting to do in such a recording. So it, it's setting a precedent that I think a lot of people... They know that when Elvis is performing like that, that he's doing gospel, but they don't know exactly from where. But if you listen to that recording, that is the exact pattern that he was trying to replicate when he would go into the studio with the Jordaneers.
1: Yeah, and the odds of Elvis knowing that record are roughly 100%. It, uh,
2: absolutely, 110%, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. he, he, knew it, he knew that record, and I am so sure that when he walked into a studio with Felton Jarvis or whoever and brought his little stack of gospel records with him that he wanted to try to replicate. That was probably one of them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I wanted to, uh, quote, uh, I thought that this was a great summary of sort of what we were talking about here that, um, Anthony Halbert says in the gospel sound, he says that, um, The rub of Jackson's church roots and pop cultural celebrity made her a field-straddling anomaly, a singer who is recognized as an extraordinary artist, marketed as a premier example of Black gospel music, music, yet whose commercially successful religious albums for Columbia often featured a production style and repertory of -of middle-of-the-road religious pop that made some gospel lovers, and at times even Jackson herself, long for the good old days. Thus, in some accounts, we find Jackson cast as both representing and misrepresenting the Black gospel field, selling gospel to the world while selling out herself, And in um, quote. And so I, I thought that that was a perfect, it just encapsulates the uh, s- sort of um, problem, uh, if you will, of Mahalia Jackson is the that
1: contradiction. Yeah, yeah, the
2: contradiction that that we, we love her for being an extraordinary artist and that um, we do think of her as a premier example of Black gospel music. And yet we have to deal with this fact that she is sort of also, uh, you know, a, a misrepresentation uh, for a lot of people of that sound.
1: Yeah. It, it, again, it reminds me of Elvis. It, it's sort of like Elvis fans making excuses for the, the movie soundtracks or something where, where um, you know, you love this artist, this artist probably came to your attention because of this pop tinted work. But then when you get to know the work, and especially when you get to know the whole body of work, And you listen to those Columbia records and you're just like, "Ah, I think I want to go listen to those Apollo records again. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And, and and like we said, I mean, we love her
2: voice and like, Frankly, I don't have as much of a problem with pop material as a lot of people would. So, I mean, the Columbia recordings are not a total wash for me. I've got some of her Columbia records, and I think that they're excellent listens, and I, I enjoy listening to them. But I'm aware that the re- the repertoire is different, and that and that the um, sound that I'm hearing is not the. Uh, traditional black gospel sound that maybe the liner notes are telling me it is, or or you would have been told in 1959, but we, we can know that with that 2020 hindsight and know that in the context and enjoy it in spite of that if we want to or avoid it because of that if we want to, but we're just kind of talking about the way that people could have either perceived or not understood what was being presented to them in, during the 50s or 60s.
1: Yeah, and another thing that's interesting is that it was pretty central to Mahalia's narrative through this whole period that she would not sell out by doing jazz or blues, that she would only sing gospel and only sing religious songs. But then the irony was she ends up singing these songs that are religious-ish, but not necessarily gospel or hymns um, or spirituals or anything in that category. They're religious pop. So, you know, there's this tension between her stated quest for purity and and her as much as she loved Bessie Smith and and you know that was kind of the big question I think for so many people in the 50s was you know what could Mahalia Jackson do if she took the gloves off and 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 went toe-to-toe with Ella Fitzgerald or Billie Holiday like what could she do in that in that secular environment and we'll never really know because she wouldn't do it but she did do um you know album after album of of material that some gospel snobs you know think of as treacle or or you know just total undeserving pop. But I think I think there's a lot more value to the Columbia discography than that. But it is interesting. And it's a there's a lot of of, you know, what ifs with Mahalia, not just the period of time between 37 and 45 when she didn't record at all and you know did that have anything to do with the musician strike or did that have anything to do with the shellac shortage i don't know i you know it's uh, the dates aren't quite right it's a little bit early um basically there just wasn't that much of a gospel record industry yet mahalia pretty much invents it with uh when she goes to apollo and starts moving units and, and so some,
2: go ahead well, oh i was just going to say that something that blew my mind when i read a a Peter Gralneck essay one time about this is going into a different genre, but he was talking about Stony Edwards, the country singer, and he said that he had always felt like Stony Edwards never made a a, a truly great as Peter knew him a, a great Stony Edwards record, which is surprising to me because I've heard many songs I thought were great Stony Edwards records. But Peter is speaking from a place where he got to hear Stony live or uh, it, you know one-on-one interviews. Like where he would sing something to him that he felt like nothing that Stony recorded ever quite perfectly captured that in the sense of the production style or the um, the the songs that were chosen and whatnot. That y- you can almost feel like an artist that is great and may have done great material, still never quite captured that lightning in a bottle in the most perfect way that they could have done at the right time. And I I thought it was interesting that there's a story that Halbert tells in his uh, book where he talks about how her friends thought of Mahalia as being a very expressive, great singer, um, even during the Columbia years and after her success and whatnot. But it was whenever she would get reminded of her past that she would really bring out um, the the greatest gospel singer that was in her and that she would do these sort of musical testimonies and that he, he tells the story about how um one evening after a program that she had gone back to a hotel with her friends and when she was counting the change of what she had earned from the date she realized that she could buy a doll And she starts telling her friends the story. She says, when I was coming up, I was too poor to afford a doll, and I always wanted to have one. And of course, you know, it was hard down in the South to be able to make enough money to do that. But I stuck with the Lord, and now he's given me enough money to buy a doll. And she starts hollering and saying that she wants to thank God for giving her enough money to buy the doll and that she starts singing about this doll and how happy she is that she can buy one. And these friends that were there said that they never heard her sing better than that moment and that what she was singing was like she was in church and that she couldn't have been singing any words at all and that just didn't matter at all because what was in her heart and what she was you know, singing from her soul was what carried that. And uh, there's also a funny story that they tell too where – uh, she's on stage, and apparently she had a pocketbook that was on her at that time. And uh, this was there was a bunch of people on stage, and she had handed the pocketbook over to somebody. And during the course of the Singing, this man had uh, been quote unquote slain in the spirit, and he fell over, and he had the pocketbook like in a kind of death grip in his hands, and they couldn't get it away from him. It, but it had Mahalia's money in it. So <laughs> while she's si- so while she's singing, she's saying, "Oh Lord, I know that prayer. Get the pocketbook, Robert." Changes things, yes, God. Get the pocketbook, Josh. Changes things, God. Grab that pocketbook. <laughs> she, she just keeps like singing, but like interjecting these things about grabbing the pocketbook. It's just so funny to think about this woman with such great. Um, you know, a, a a religious image, and 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 also this great spirit uh, business sense in addition to the spiritual sense, um, a, a very uh, earthy woman, despite her her image as well. And uh, I, I think that that kind of sums up in a lot of ways what made her great and made her a singer that uh, people could relate to when they heard her.
1: Yeah, absolutely. She never lost her humanity, and no matter how much grandeur, uh, she she around herself and how much power she was able to summon. She was always a very human person. And so, yeah, uh, for Garrett Cash, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing The Gospel Sound, The Good News and Bad Times by Anthony Howell, just the Mahalia Jackson chapter, and also a little bit of reference to Mahalia Jackson, The Gospel Field. And like I said, like Garrett said, I'm going to try to get Mark Burford back to talk Mahalia and that book Probably do that solo, and then you and I will come back, Garrett, and we'll talk about Sister Rosa the Tharp next time.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, Nate interviews Mahalia Jackson biographer Mark Burford, let it roll as a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.